Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello everyone, it is roughly 5.20 on Thursday, September 17th, 2020, and that means it's time for this week's trip down the homeward path. My name is Adam, I'm a husband, father of three, and I just finished another, we'll say, dead at 40 hour work week, and I do this show for one reason, magic is hard, getting better at magic even harder. And doubly so when magic is not your number one priority. But if we focus on the three B's of self-improvement at magic, budgeting, brewing, and breaking bad habits, improvement will come. If that sounds like you, well, I had one and I lost it. I guess I didn't expect to be disrupted. Uh, we're going to start things off with our budget spotlight segment. Uh, budget spotlight every week we highlight a card at un, at minimum we highlight a card at uncommon, rare, and mythic that costs way less than it should and would be a good pickup for a budget player's collection to add to the arsenal, if you will. And speaking of disruption, it's really hard to go wrong with the Inquisition of Kozilek at Uncommon. Uh, this card is $3. Like, that's that's Cool Stuff Inc. price. $3. Come on. $3. Um, for those of you who don't know what it does, it is a single black mana to look at your opponent's hand, choose a non-land card with converted mana cost 3 or less, and make them discard that card. Now, that's basically a painless thought season in modern, right? And a good amount of the time, it's almost a painless thought season in formats like Legacy or what have you. Like, being able to take three drops or less comprises the overwhelming majority of spells and decks in formats from modern backwards. There's a good reason they didn't reprint this card in Zendikar Rising. It's because it's really, really good. It's still one of Magic's all-time premier pieces of disruption. And thankfully, this card has finally been reprinted into a state of affordability. And it's one of those cards that, like, it seems unassuming. And then you get to play with it, and you're like, oh, well, this is just actually really good. Like, this is fine most of the time where you would want a Thought Seize. And then you'll run into that one matchup probably twice over the course of the evening where you actually want the real Thought Seize, and that's just a, it's just a whole other thing. But it's a, it's a card that slots into a lot of decks. Any kind of disruptive-oriented black deck in Modern and Legacy can make use of this card. To say nothing of more niche formats like... Well, we won't go into that. That's that's a whole other episode that I want to do someday. 
No need to spill the beans yet. And, you know, not for nothing, but it's also an opportunity to do a dad joke. I will be picking up my own set here before too long. But we're going to get three in English and one in Spanish. Why? Because nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Moving on, let's move up to Rare, where at the same price point, mind you, Inquisition of Kozilek, $3, Premier Hand Disruption Spell, one of them in in Modern and Legacy. At $3 at Rare, we have access to Scavenging Ooze. Uh, we're going to notice a theme here. As I have in the notes, it said, arguably one of the best utility bears of all time, applying pressure while disrupting graveyard synergies. It only gets better as more and more cards like Croxa and Uro start to see print. It's just the kind of card that's like always fine and sometimes it's amazing. It's also something you really want in standard right now if you're one of those people that actually plays paper standard and if you're not, just spend the wild cards and get them on arena or spend the tickets because it's even less on magic online but it also has synergy of its own with cards like claim to fame call the death dweller and luris luris in particular is an interesting interesting combination with scavenging ooze in standard because when a lot of people think about a green black shell or a, a green white shell for counters they think you know, big, dumb, and massive, but you can get by, like, in Abzan Colors with cards like Call the Death Dweller, uh, Conclave, like, an Abzan Counter Shell that plays Scavenging Ooze, Conclave Mentor, uh, Stone Coil Serpent, Call the Death, I said Call the Death Dweller already, uh, Mythos of Nethroi, I think it is, the, the Abzan one that's basically a destroy target permanent for three mana in Abzan if you're playing Abzan. You get the you get the gist of what I'm you get the point I'm trying to drive home here, get it? Because I'm driving home. It's funny because cars. Uh, <laughs> but the synergy with cards that care about small cost creatures is it's there. It's not nothing. You know, if you wanted to take the Rakdos uh, Pyromancer deck and splash a little bit of green into it, whether you're looking at doing it in Pioneer in order to pick up cards like Traverse the Ulvenwald and uh, easier the ability to access the, the actual text on a card like Tassiger, or if you're looking to pick up, you know, green and for it in like Historic or even in Standard to pick up access to Scavenging Ooze and then something like Cheville, um, I guess not in standard. You can't play that deck in standard. But even in historic, you can pick up like Assassin's Trophy is another hard removal spell, Scavenging Ooze, Disrupt Graveyards, so on and so forth. It fits well in there because it plays well with both Luris and Call the Death Dweller and with uh, Claim to Fame because it's a creature that costs two mana. It's not nothing. And speaking of not nothing, let's move up to Mythic, where we're going to take a look at one that's a little bit undervalued, I would say. I'm not going to go out on a limb and call it one of the premier pieces of anything, because this is almost certainly just strictly a standard card. Uh, but that card is Garuk Unleashed at 
$4. Now, Garouk Unleashed, the plus one and minus three are probably like the only two abilities you ever use. I mean, don't quote me on that. This is the only two I've ever seen used. Uh, but you can alternate the minus three and plus one to dominate stalled boards. Because the minus three will make you a, make you a token. And then if your opponent has more creatures than you, you get to put a loyalty back on Garouk. Which means when you plus three the next, or plus one the next turn, you'll be back up to three. At which point you can minus three again. You can end up getting a lot of value out of one Garouk at four mana. Plus three, plus three, and trample can kill, can push through and kill planeswalkers without wasting whole removal spells. That's kind of important. You know, looking at looking at standard right now, through the lens of I don't know what's going on with Zendikar yet. One of the one of the places to look is cards like uh, Teferi, Master of Time, which frequently will come down and plus up to five and then plus up to six, or we'll try to phase something out. Well, if you Garouk, you can force the action, force them to remove loyalty from it. If they minus in order to phase out your creature, it's the same thing as your 3-3 your three, three getting in there. If they plus in response to the Garouk, well, you just smash it to death. I don't know why they do that, but, you know... The ability to press through and hit Planeswalkers. You can hit a Nahiri. You can hit uh, Royal Scions without using Swift End from your hand. Without using uh, Eat to Extinction. Without using uh, Eliminate. It's not nothing. And then most notably, it sits at the perfect point in the curve for like sort of aggressively slanted green-ish mid-range decks where you come down after some combination of disruptions or other threats and this thing just like lets what you're doing do it better if it comes down after several disruption spells it just makes a creature and you start attacking the next turn if it's coming down after a uh after a removal effect like the board is usually going to be pretty close it's just going to come down and start to dominate. Uh, if it's coming down after other threats, your opponent is forced to react. You know, let, play into the Storm's Wrath in order to get them to blow it, and then down comes Garouk and makes a token and keeps up the pressure. Or, you know, whatever. It's, a, it's the kind of card that is unassuming, but it gets better depending on how you play. And speaking of things that get better on, based on how we play, let's look at this week's Brew of the Week, which is something I've been playing around with in Historic for a while. I haven't done a Historic deck tech, really, except for the Cycling Gift. And that one doesn't really count because I haven't really gotten to play it. I still haven't been able to craft Godfarrow's Gift. Uh, so I've just been playing the Cycling deck when I want to do that. But this week's Deck of the Week, Brew of the Week, is Rakdos Death Whirler. Now, it's very important that I make this distinction. This deck is typically built as a mono-red aggro that splashes Call the Death Dweller and Black Sideboard cards. That is not what we're up to. I walk a different path. 
a homeward path, if you will. Uh, what I want to do is marry the disruption of black discard spells, cards like Thought Seize and Agonizing Remorse, to a big aggro style, emphasizing raw card efficiency to make up for tempo lost by disrupting my opponents. And I know that's a lot of words. What that means is there's a lot of really powerful things going on in historic cards like Bolas' Citadel, cards like uh, Collected Company, cards like Uro, cards like Muxus. And I get really tired of getting run over by those cards. So rather than try to fight them on an axis that they're playing into, you know, if you're trying to fight Uro by killing them before they can escape it, well, it gains them three life and jumps them ahead on mana. It's a terrible idea. If you're trying to fight Muxus by racing, that's exactly what they signed up for. I would rather be able to take those cards that are just backbreaking and unbelievably powerful and that do a lot of work to to catch the opponent up when I've been, you know, when we've been exchanging resources. I would rather be able to take away their ability to come back. Take away their haymakers because typically those decks can't play as good of a fair game. But by emphasizing a disruption presence and removal early, I also lose out on some tempo because if I'm not developing my board, my opponent's not under pressure. In order to make up for that, we're playing bigger creatures, just physically larger creatures. Uh, notably, the, the combo in question is Call the Death Dweller and Goblin Chain Whirler, which is a way to catch up when you fall behind against aggro decks like goblins, like the sacrifice decks, like, well, you get the idea. Uh, Call the Death Dweller plus Goblin Chain Whirler is build your own Plague Wind. It's kill all your creatures, deal one damage to all your planeswalkers, and deal one damage to you for three men. And also put a first strike death touch menace thing on the table. That's another one of those, that's a whole lot of words. Uh, one of the pieces that's really unassuming, but has been a little bit of an unsung hero for the deck, is Rick's Mighty Reveler. Uh, one in a red, it's bear, it's a 2-2 two -two for one in a red. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, discard a card, draw a card, or if you paid its spectacle cost, which is two, a black and a red, discard your hand, then draw three. Now. Full disclosure, I almost never get to cast this thing for spectacle. It's just not a thing I do. It's not what this deck is designed for. But, the ability to pitch cards like a Chain Whirler you can't cast because mana's horrible in Rakdos when you're actually trying to play Chain Whirler Index with Thought Season Agonizing Remorses because you're a psychopath. Uh, you can pitch your Chain Whirlers through Rick's Mighty Reveler to try to draw into either your third red source for the redundant copy in your hand or to your Call the Death Dweller to just get it anyway. It'll also dump a Croxa out of our hand so our opponent is forced to not take a card out of our hand with a remorse of their own or, you know, 
It's a Croxa in the graveyard ready to come back later. It's also valuable later on as a way to refuel after combat. You know, if if the hand's looking kind of rough, you're starting to flood out. You can always just chump attack. Ah, whatever. You probably have something. Let's just take two. And then you just cast a cast cast a reveler, pitch two lands, and draw three cards. It's a good place to be. You know, sacrifice my fanatical firebrand, aim it at your head just to get a draw three out of it. That seems fine. It plays a wide array of one-for-one removal effects to maintain a simplified board state that Chain Whirler can dominate. I.e., we're playing cards like uh, Fanatical Firebrand because it has synergy with the central combo. Notably, you can bring back like a Reveler to pitch a Chain Whirler and uh, a Fanatical Firebrand, put the Menace counter on the Reveler, the Death Touch counter on the Firebrand, and the Firebrand can now trade for any creature that dies to damage ever because death touch uh, we play eliminate and what is it I think it's a split of eliminate heartless act and Angrath's rampage Angrath's rampage is sneaky good because it's a two mana way to kill planeswalkers I can't really like overstate how good that is that's really good Two mana kill Planeswalker strong. It's also another one of those cards like against the the uh, Rakdos the Rakdos Lyris decks. Chain Whirler itself is actually just bonkers against them because all their creatures are one ones except Lurus and Croxa. So if they've got, you know, Pyromancer, a bunch of tokens, Stitcher suppliers and stuff on the board and Allurus, you can like cast a Chain Whirler, cast an Angrass Rampage. Chain Whirler's going to kill everything but the Lurus and then the Rampage makes him sack the Lurus. That's pretty good. Uh, and you can also, there's also the possibility of sideboarding with this deck that's really interesting. Because you're only three drops in your main deck, your only three drop like permanents are Chain Whirler and Bone Crusher Giant, which can both be boarded out in order to reveal Luris's companion in game two, and you can board into a grindy Luris deck against appropriate matchups. You can board into like Young Pyromancer and Village Rites. And just kind of board into the the Rakdos Luris deck. Or the other way around. If you start with the Rakdos Luris deck, you can board into uh, Chain Whirler, Call the Death Dweller, Bone Crusher Giant, and board out. Like, just take Luris out as companion. Maybe you move it into the main. You can do that too. It's a weird deck, but it's fun. It's unbelievably fun. Powerful. I mean, it's kind of cute when you're playing cards like Mire Triton and it seems embarrassing to be playing them, but it's a creature with Death Touch for two mana. So it just trades up a lot of the time. You know, 
I, Stitcher supplier is probably good here, but Death Touch is kind of important. But the, the overwhelming theme of the deck is to just kind of trade aggressively one for one, do a good job of it, and then try to, like, value, get a little bit of, squeeze a tiny little bit of extra value out of every single card you play through the mid-game to try to gas your opponent out, get them playing off the top of the deck, and just beat them up with what you get. And along those same lines, it's time to go into our main topic, which I titled A Rocky Relationship. <laughs> We're going to be talking about the history of one of Magic's oldest and most iconic deck archetypes today. And that archetype is The Rock. The Rock was named for... Well, it, it was created by Sol Malka, who devised the concept and name in 2001 for the extended format that doesn't exist anymore. The name was devised because of the popularity of professional wrestling at the time. You had The Rock, which was Phyrexian Plague Lord, and His Millions, which was Deranged Hermit. That's where the name came from. It eventually just shorthanded to The Rock. But what you did with The Rock is you combined Black Disruption and Removal with Big Green Creatures. That's what Malka was doing. You used Black Disruption and Removal to make sure your opponents didn't kill you before you could just slam a big stupid thing on the table and beat them to death with it. Eventually, this deck became a mainstay of the extended format because we got better removal and disruption. We got cards like Cabal Therapy. We got cards like uh, Pernicious Deed. We got, you know, the, the White Splash for Vindicate and Gerard's Verdict. And then it existed in some form up until the format just stopped existing. You know, we got cards like Psychotog, and there were versions of the rock that tried to splash for Tog. Uh, there were versions of the rock that played more lands in their deck and played a little bit of land synergy in order to take advantage of Terravor. Played a bunch of fetches in your deck anyway. Everybody played fetches. Terravor was going to be really big. So why not play Seismic Assault in your black green rock deck? Like it seems fine. <laughs> Magic's weird sometimes. It eventually, though, once Extended gave way to Modern, you know, once Extended started to bleed into Modern, it kind of lost its identity, becoming more closely related to, in the lexicon of the average Magic player, when they talk about building the Rock, they talk about building just like a green, a green X mid-range deck that has some value in it. You know, you talk about building the Rock in Standard, you're talking about playing like the Stompy deck with some disruption in it. Which I guess technically isn't untrue, but it's not like the spirit of what Malka had going on. So let's talk about some of the key tenets of design for The Rock. The first and almost the identifying characteristic of a good Rock deck is disruption. 
I guess technically that's true in Yu-Gi-Oh too. Never mind. That's a bad joke. Ignore that. But disruption is an integral part of the strategy for The Rock. Hand disruption takes out cards you can't beat. You should use hand disruption and consider hand disruption in the deck, not as a tempo card, but as a form of proactive removal. You want to remove it before it becomes a threat. That's what this card is. That's what a thought sees. An Inquisition of Kozilek, a Duress, Agonizing Remorse, Thought Erasure. That's what all these cards are doing. They are removing something before it becomes a problem. Graveyard Disruption has also become more and more necessary over the years. Cards like Scavenging Ooze, which we talked about a little while ago, fit the bill admirably. But even, you know, cards like Cling to Dust, Death Gorge Scavenger, when it was in Standard, you know, incidental graveyard hate that you can strap to a creature. That's something you want. You know, if you can strap incidental graveyard hate to a permanent, you're on board with that. Because it's like getting, you're getting to double dip. You get a thing and you get to stop them from getting a thing. And mana disruption has also come into favor over the years, whether through actual land destruction cards, like using trophy in your black-green rock decks in modern in order to keep them from assembling Tron, or even, you know, in versions of Jund in the past, playing Fulminator Mage, cards like Geomancer's Gambit, Pillage, Stone Rain, whatever. They're not mainstays of the strategy per se, but incidental mana denial is not a bad thing. But even cards like Blood Moon that just blanket shut down a whole thing. Blood Moon, back to basics. Uh, Blood Sun, whatever. You know, it's it's a surgical tool that's available for the arsenal. And not for nothing, but counter spells also kind of fill into this role. They're like a discard spell that your opponent has to pay mana in order for you to get to reveal. It's like an instant speed discard spell that they walk into. Let me think, the best way to put that. It is a cabal therapy for a little extra mana that they tap mana for. <laughs> they help you pay for it. I don't know. Counterspell, they're, they're rare in like purebred The Rock decks because players just don't like not using their mana every turn. But it's the kind of thing that can give you a little bit of a leg up. But notably, like the, the category of disruption does not necessarily mean the deck has to be black. You can play like a teamer deck that plays like The Rock, where your counter spells fill the role that your discard spells would in dedicated, in, in more quote-unquote traditional rock, and then you can combine that with some element of like mana, can-tripping mana disruption, like what we have in standard, the one we just got from uh, Zendikar Rising that's destroy target land, go get a basic, destroy target land, you go get a basic, uh, I draw a card for two mana. 
that's really good. Not because it's overwhelming, not because it, you know, keeps them from being able to cast their spells because of the amount of mana, but because you can cut them off a key color of mana. And not for nothing, but that's going to be one of those cards that players are going to not respect and get blown out by because they don't play enough basics in their deck. It's a nice little deck building check on people. But again, you know, your your teamer mid-range deck that plays a little bit of counterspell, a little bit of mana denial, and then some value threats at 3, 4, and 5 mana, that's basically the rock. You know, Uro is like the embodiment of the kind of threat rock decks like because it gives you all the value up front. And then by the time it comes out of the graveyard and starts beating them to death, it's already done all the work that it needed to do. If all it does is draw you two cards and gain you six life, it's it's done plenty of work. <laughs> so, moving on to the next category of cards that are really important for the rock is removal. Removal I would categorize into two categories. I guess that was a little redundant, but so do so. Redundant is also what some of your removal effects need to be. Uh, your cheap removal needs to be able to efficiently answer any size creature at similar mana curve points. I.e., if you're playing a, a green-black deck or a, a black-ish rock variant in standard, Blood Chief's Thirst is really, really good because it kills any creature at two mana or less, regardless of how big it is. Meanwhile, Shock, in decks that wouldn't otherwise have access to Blood, Ch Blood Chief's Thirst, Shock kills any creature that has toughness to or less, regardless of how much mana it costs. So either way, you are trading up as often as possible. That's the goal. Increase your mana efficiency out of your cheap removal. You want it to trade with as wide a range of permanents as possible, one for one. That's the end result you are after. That's the result you're seeking. Expensive removal, on the other hand, needs to be able to handle a wide array of threats. Cards like Swift End are a good example of expensive removal in rock decks. Because, well, I mean, Swift End for three mana and two life, you get to trade with anything. Destroy target creature or planeswalker. And then you draw a two, three lifeline. It's like everything The Rock wants. A card like Death Sprout before rotation traditionally would be exactly the kind of removal spell a good Rock deck would want because you kill a creature and go get a land. Doesn't matter how big that creature is. Doesn't matter how, you know, power and toughness doesn't matter. Mana cost doesn't matter. Just destroy target creature, go get a basic land. Four mana. That's good. That's the kind of thing those decks have always liked. I mean, and then if you have access to cheap and versatile removal, I mean, you're gonna play it. Eliminate's a really good example. It's a cheap removal spell, and then it only costs two mana. And it trades up with any creature or planeswalker that costs three or less. 
but that also makes it a versatile removal spell because it kills creatures and planeswalkers at the same curve point. A card like Assassin's Trophy is another similar one. Wherein, now maybe not so much in standard, but in older formats where the giving them the extra land isn't as big a deal, or maybe they're just not playing enough basics to fully take advantage, or the ability to hit lands is important, Assassin's Trophy is really good because it kills a creature, kills a planeswalker, kills an enchantment, kills an artifact, uh, kills a planeswalker, kills whatever you need it to kill for two mana. Angrass Rampage in the Rakdos Death Whirler deck can kill a creature, provided either either the the board state is simplified or uh, you're in the early development stages and there's just not a lot of them. It can kill a Planeswalker or it can kill an Artifact. And notably, I love that card for that purpose, for the purpose of killing a Planeswalker or Artifact, simply because the decks that play them in formats like Historic or Pioneer typically don't play many of them. Like, the Bolas' Citadel decks don't play a ton of other artifacts. In some cases, like, the Pioneer lists, like, don't even just, just don't even play anymore. They just play Bolas' Citadel. They don't play Cat Oven. They don't play anything that'll give them more artifacts. So you can just cheese that and get the bolus to Citadel. That's really good. But that's another example of a cheap and versatile removal spell. Because it trades with several different permanent types at the same mana cost. So moving on from removal, let's go to the things removal is supposed to address, and that's your threats. And similar to removal, we got to categorize our threats. Three slots. Cheap threats need to be either hyper-efficient or give you some form of disruption. When we think hyper-efficient, there's not really more of a gold standard than our resident Lurgoyf Tarmogoyf. That thing's just, like, it's, the, it's a card that gets more efficient the more you play Magic. It costs two mana. And uh, when you ask what its power and toughness are, it basically says whatever you want me to be. Plus one. Like, fetch into Thought Seize, taking your creature gives you a 2 3 Goyf on turn three. Or a 3 4 Goyf on turn three, provided no other permanent type or no other card type goes into a graveyard. That's really good. You know, or fetch into basic Inquisition if you're not suicidal. Because I've lost a burn way too many times to be comfortable opening on fetch shock thoughtsies unless I'm playing Death Shadow, and that's just it's a whole other ball of wax. But cards like Tarmogoyf occupy the kind of kind of give you the idea of what the gold standard for efficient threats looks like. But even in uh, Pioneer, a card like Grimflayer is a good example of an of a cheap threat. It's two mana. Gets real big for not a ton of work. It's still a little more work than you're probably super comfortable doing. But your opponent's going to help you with some of that. 
fabled passage exists, you know, there's, there's ways to help it get bigger. Or cards like Scavenging Ooze, the quote-unquote hate bears, the disruptive two-drop creatures that keep your opponent from doing stuff, that kind of personifies your cheap threats for the rock. Mid-game threats, on the other hand, need to serve as two-for-ones. If they resolve, removing them doesn't undo the damage they've done. Really important distinction between the rock and mid-range. Mid-range, three, like three-drop, four-drop creatures tend to be just big and efficient and sometimes do a thing. A card like Leyline Tyrant is not a rock threat. A card like Bonecrusher Giant is not a rock threat. Let me stress that again. Bonecrusher Giant is in the removal slot. I treated it as a removal spell in the Death Whirler deck. It is not in the deck as a threat. Mid-game threats need to be two-for-ones. I guess technically Bonecrusher Giant is then, right? Because, like, you trade the front half for the front half of it for a creature, then draw the back half, cast the back half. It's like you got, you got a preemptive two-for-one. This is technically still good. You know, the adventure creatures are good examples of mid-game threats for the rock. Lovestruck Beast. Leaves behind a body. You know, if you cast all of Lovestruck Beast in one turn, you get a five, five you get six power across two bodies. Now, they kill the one one, the five five stuck there. Play another one one, you unlock it, go to work. Start beating now. But even more traditional looks at it, you get creatures like uh, Eternal Witness is gonna get you a card back. World of Virtuoso gives you whatever you're gonna get out of three energy. Rogue Refiner draws you a card, gives you two energy. Yes, I know I'm talking about energy cards because that deck was basically the rock. By the end of its run, and st by the by the time it got banned, it was the it was a deck that was playing counter spells because it needed to be able to disrupt the opponent. It's the rock. So creatures that draw a card. You know, enter the battlefield, draw a card. Great here. It's exactly what we're looking for. You know, Rogue Refiner, if it didn't have the energy tacked onto it, would still have been a perfect creature for the rock. It just so happened to have energy on it too, so it was even better. And then endgame threats must, by necessity, be both difficult to remove and represent a snowballing advantage. Really important. One of the easiest ways for a, a threat to be difficult to remove is for it to be a weird permanent type. That's why you see so many planeswalkers in these kinds of decks. Because frankly, there just aren't enough removal spells for planeswalkers. You look in standard post-rotation, we've got Swift End and Blood Chief's Thirst. And that's about it. And that Blood Chief's Thirst got to be kicked. I guess you can pick... There's some other ones along the way. There's the Party one. There's the... Um, Eat to Extinction. Like, 
there's removal spells for planeswalkers, but they're not efficient removal spells for planeswalkers, except for Swift Hit. And you have to play them. You know, Banishing Light's another good one. But that's one of those, it's another one of those, they have to be playing them and they have to have it when you play your Planeswalker. But Planeswalkers are also good examples of a mid-game threat because they will come down, do a thing, and then leave behind a Planeswalker for the opponent to deal with. But even, you know, a card like Rekindling Phoenix is a classic example of a rock creature. Because it's a four mana creature that your opponent has to use two cards to kill. And if they are limited to damage based removal, they have to have four total damage spread across two cards. So double shock won't do it. And it's technically shock plus the new um, spike, the, the, the one drop, one damage to any target. If it would die this turn, exile it, flip thing. It's either that or uh, tap red source. I can't remember the name. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. In-game threats must, by necessity, be both difficult to remove and represent a snowballing advantage. Big, dumb creatures don't really fill that role. But creatures with powerful enter-the-battlefield abilities, creatures with abilities that trigger turn after turn after turn that allow you to pull ahead, Creatures that are difficult to block, creatures that are big enough to be difficult to remove. A really good example, like, in standard right now, obviously the gold standard would be Uro, but even something like Drana is a good example. The new, the new Drana from Zendikar Rising. Because it's a five drop, so it never ever dies to eliminate or Blood Chief's Thirst, or to a single copy of Shock, or to, um, I'm drawing a blank here. <sighs> Regardless, you know, none of those things kill it. There's none of them. It's an odd creature, so you can, you know, sculpt the game in such a way that they're incentivized to extinction event for even, even if they don't need to. Bad jokes. I'm going to do this all day. But cards that fill multiple roles in this are the bedrock of eternal format success for the rock. A really good example is a card like Renin Six, which can be both like card advantage, mid-game threat, because it comes down, gets you a land back, You've got a threat on the board that's going to work their life total down little by little. Or you've got the ability to buy back a, like a ghost quarter type of effect and just keep sniping down lands. It's disruption on your threat. Liliana the Veil is disruption with the threat of just wrecking their board and they lose. Vrasco Golgari Queen. I mean... Mid-game threat. Come down, kill a thing, leave a planeswalker behind. 
It's exactly what you want it for, man, and the rock. But then it can also sit there and plus up, and then its ultimate makes it to where you don't care what their life total is anymore. If I get through with one thing, you're dead. That's pretty good. Liliana Dreadhorde General. Come down, eat two creatures. Make a zombie. Attack for two, make a zombie. Attack for four, make a zombie. Attack for six, make a zombie. Oh, alt. All your stuff is gone. <laughs> Liliana the Last Hope is a recursion piece. Three mana. Mill two, get a thing back. Okay, kill those two small creatures. Shrink those two small creatures. Plus, plus, shrink, shrink, shrink. Oh, now I've got an emblem that you can't interact with that's going to steadily overwhelm you. Like, that's the kind of thing we're looking at. It's, it's a card that fills multiple jobs. You know, Liliana the Veil is both an endgame threat in that it's a planeswalker. Hard to remove easily. But it's also going to be a disruption piece because it's going to work their hand apart. Can be a removal piece because of the edict. And then eventually you get to alt and kill them. Because you blow up their stuff. And then the last piece of advice I would give for the rock in all of these is you should be building this deck with a really keen eye on your sideboard. Because it is not a deck that is going to win a ton in best of one. As a matter of fact, game one with the rock, you are probably closer to like 40-60 against the field than you are 60-40. You're more interested in efficiency and versatility and just kind of overall, I hate using this word, but ability to kind of play your way through it. But the real magic, without the gathering, happens after you sideboard. When you sideboard with a deck like this, you get to take out the cards that are kind of hedging your bets against the field and then target it against what you're up against. And the only way that works is if you know what your flex slots are. The neat thing about a deck like the, the Death Whirler deck or the Rakdos Luris decks, even Jund and Modern, most of your deck is flex slots. Like, you want to keep some number of threats in, you want to keep some amount of disruption, and then beyond that, like, what removal spells you play can change according to your matchup in order to either increase efficiency or versatility. You can board down on removal to bring in more disruption against combo decks. You can, like, there's a lot of range to these decks. Mid-range, if you will that they have a lot of access to. They can do a lot of different things. That's what makes them so unique, makes them so viable, and makes them so popular. At the end of it, it's just, that's what you're here for. That's why you're signing up for The Rock. But that's all I've got for this week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. As we go into a new standard format, we get a lot of new toys to play with. We get a lot of new ideas. The format around us changes. So 
you can do a whole lot worse than looking at that format, looking at the creatures that everybody's going to play and going, huh, well, I can just play a few of these creatures that make it really difficult for them to keep up. And then I can play, oh Lord, sorry. And then we can play, I'm drawing a blank, removal of our own that kill those, kill those creatures. Our creatures, <clears throat> after a certain point in the curve, don't die to the most commonly played removal spells. Think like three drop creatures that don't die to shock is a really good example that also give you something. You know, four drop creatures and up that don't die to the royal eruption, the four damage spell. Planeswalkers, so on and so forth. You just, you end up creating this kind of value-oriented monstrosity. And it's really just a good time. It's steady, solid, like a rock. So, with that out of the way, let's remind you where you can find me. You can find me on Twitter, at OnwardPathMTG. On Facebook, my name is Adam Spain. Uh, you can join the conversation in the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. It is very carefully moderated, let me tell you. Um, we had one come in that said they got it from the, the podcast, and we got a pending post alert and deleted the post and kicked the person before it ever posted. So, we do keep a close eye on it. Don't worry. But, you know, while you're perusing the web, a few more things. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, puremtgo.com. They are going to be responsible for my foray into Limited with Zendikar Rising. I was originally going to do it on Arena, but I'm having a lot of trouble getting my laptop to do it. Or not my laptop, my desktop. My laptop just won't run Arena. It's a HP stream and just not remotely designed for that much load. But my desktop is having trouble stable with a stable run of Arena. And it may have something to do with the network connection. It's something I'm going to try and work on, but we haven't got there yet. Uh, but I digress. When it comes to Arena, I didn't want to draft for a couple of reasons. One, it doesn't give me wild cards, so it makes it harder for me to absolutely get the cards we need i had uh, fifty-three thousand gold saved up specifically for zendikar the plan was to draft it until i couldn't afford to draft again but now like without having without getting wild cards back for opening draft packs without uh being able to run arena stable very well i'm more inclined to just get a bunch of packs get a bunch of wild cards build accordingly and then draft on mtgo and that's possible thanks to the sponsorship through mtgo traders and puremtgo.com so don't forget to head over there check out the content on that website let them know we sent you love them up because they've been they've been taking good care of us and then if you want to take good care of me directly 
patreon.com slash homeworkpathmtg. This show's always going to be free. But if you like what I'm doing enough to help me keep doing it, feel free to pledge. You get access to our Discord server. You get access to uh, my decks before anyone else as I start building them. And, you know, I like to talk with my listeners. And I'm more inclined to seek out and initiate conversation with the ones that I know are supporting me. So, with that in mind, that's all I've got for this week. So let's go to our our favorite segment at the end of every episode. We only got one entry this week. But it's a good one. Uh, Emma Partlow tweeted, and it's one of my favorite columns on the entirety of the internet, Emma Partlow's budget, Modern on a Budget series. If you haven't checked it out, it's on TCG Player. Go over there and do it. There are a lot of fantastic articles. Just do it. But Emma says, you could say my article this week is pretty crabtivating. Because this week's article on TCG Player from Emma Partlow was Mill in Modern. Because we get Ruined Crab in Zendikar Rising to link clawed hands with Hedron Crab. And nobody is upset. Like, <laughs> it just seems like a good time, right? Good, clean living, sort of. As much as you can call, I guess as much as you can call it living when you're talking about ripping your opponent's thoughts from their head. But I digress. That was a good joke. High quality. I'm here for it. Keep them coming. But with that out, that's all I got for this week. That's That was the only MTG Dad Jokes entry. So I'm going to leave it with that. And with my traditional parting words. Look, I know... Everything going on, like, if you were to ask right now why everybody's so angry and everybody's so up in arms about everything all the time, I would just gesture broadly in any given direction. I understand. But one of the best ways to take care of each other, one of the best ways to, to help each other out, when, de- when interacting person to person, never be cruel. Never be cowardly. Remember, hate is always foolish. Love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So, disrupt their hand. Marry disruption plus clock. Be kind. We'll catch you next week. Be safe, everybody.